You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. My guest today is Chris Myers. Chris is a fantastic actor who I went to Juilliard with. He was in the class right after me, and I've been looking forward to having him on the podcast for a while now. He is such a multifaceted artist who's always making work happen, whether it be as an actor, writer, director, producer, or a teaching artist. He's done a lot of wonderful theater in New York, and now he's based out in Los Angeles. I was also interested to speak with Chris about his work this year developing a series of study groups which are currently called Anti-Capitalism for Artists. You can find Chris on social media at Chris Myers, Inc. I'm excited to share this conversation with you all. I hope you enjoy the 168th episode of The Compass. I always start with the first question, the same first question, which is... What do you do to try to keep from going to the dark side as an artist? Whoa, that's where you start. <laughs> so you just dive in. And I guess wrapped up in that question is like when I say that, when I say the dark side, what, is, what does that look like most often for you? What do you hmm. think of? Well, yeah, that's a way to start for sure. I mean, um, I, I, well, first of all, to be honest, it's like I don't always have that, right? So I think now I'm at the age where I'm, I've kind of accepted that this is not um, maybe something you can win, that it's actually, there's a humility to acknowledging that you might just end up there despite your best efforts. Um, mm-hmm. For me, that that's a place of hopelessness, um, of lack of purpose, feeling kind of uh, at the whim of chaos rather than being like in control of, of your, your life and your artistry and like what you're spending your time on earth doing. And I think that's, that's, um, that's a pretty, that's a pretty baseline experience, I think, for most artists, um, both because art, I think, is like a generative process where you're pulling from the ether and, you know, will I, will I figure it out this next time? But also, I think the context in which we are, um, we labor um, under, you know, the political economic system we're currently in is like very, it's very competitive, you know, it's very um, unforgiving, you know, we try to make art that matters and it says something, but the marketplace, um, to whatever extent it might pay us for our work, is not built on those principles. So there's a necessary dissonance. So yeah, sometimes I'm just thrust into that place, um, despite my best efforts. And I think the way that I, to answer your question, then pull pull myself out of it, well, like I said, part of it these days has been just 
acknowledging that I'm there and not fighting it and like letting myself be depressed or whatever and hopeless and aimless. And then just the recognition that that's information, that that's data, that I can actually say, okay, well, if I've lost sight of something, then I need to go back to the drawing board from the ground up, you know, and, and be like, well, what can, what can I offer here in this moment? And I think for a lot of my 20s, I didn't have to actually spend too much time thinking about that. Um, I think I had a lot less pessimism, for instance, mm. um, which I think is maybe just realism about how this world works. And so I was often able to like recharge the well, you know, um, whereas these days I, I sometimes feel, and I don't know if this is a good thing, but I, I feel a little more kind of, it's a little harder to like dig down and like recalibrate and be like, who am I? What do I have to offer? Who's out there that I can collaborate with? I think, you know, it's important that it's not a solitary effort to, to get out of that, to keep from that dark place, but that you're in community with people, that you're collaborating with people. Um, they can often be a lifeline. So, but just identifying those people, you know, um, it's, I had a really cool network around me in my twenties and for no fault of anyone, you know, people have just grown apart. I have to, sometimes you look up when you're about to like head toward that place. Like, well, wait, I can't, it's not like a pattern. It's not like a, a reflex. You actually do have to really like, well, who's here now? Who am I now? What am I about now? And um, yeah, I'm happy to say, and I'm sure we'll talk about, it, I found some, some and new answers to those questions, but yeah, I think that's the process. Do you ever have moments where you find it really, really difficult to reach out? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going through that now. Yeah. I it's mean, especially, especially tricky right now when we're all like actually isolated. Mm-hmm. And we're um, all going through so much, you know, you don't want to be adding to someone else's already full plate. Right. Right. I mean, you're someone, I know we haven't been in touch that much in recent years, although the magic of the internet makes us all feel like we know what's going on with other people. And from the magic of the internet, you're someone who I've always gotten the impression that you are kind of always throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks and like trying to make your own work and trying to collaborate and trying to think outside the box. When did that start for you? Was there a period like after school where you were kind of on the train of like, well, let me just audition and have people give me work and kind of let me be an interpreter of their work? Or have you always been like, okay, I also need to be driving my own train. Yeah, I actually, I don't know if I've ever really thought, like, where did it start? Where did it come from? Um, So I'm thinking before Juilliard, I I think maybe the most kind of formative experience was being a part of the Harlem School for the Arts um, program, which is like an after-school slash weekend um, program um, that... Um, was run by a guy named Alfred Pricer who came from the downtown off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway world of the, like, 90s and early aughts and brought that spirit um, of kind of DIY work, you know, just find a space, find an empty warehouse, whatever you can, and just go crazy and make something, you know, weird. Um, He brought that uh, uptown when he... uh, ran the theater program at HSA, working with these little kids. And um, he also started a professional company, the Classical Theater of Harlem, that was at that time in residence at the Harlem School for the Arts. And, and students like myself would get, you know, their little spear holder 
you know, one liner mm-hmm. in some of these prof- professional plays, but you know, they were equity contracts. It was the first time I ever got paid for my acting was in a production of Macbeth, um, you know, having one line. Um, but just that, that, that ethos um, was something that I was keenly aware of throughout high school. And, um, you know, I was associated with them even during my time at Juilliard, I would go to their shows and stuff like that, even though I wasn't acting with him or studying with him. And I think by the time I did get out of Juilliard and things were slow, especially for the first kind of like year and a half, um, I don't think that I, I think that I maybe did some like off, off Broadway and some like workshoppy things and some showcases, but I didn't get a union, a, a proper like union contract job until like a year and a half, two years out of school. And I just didn't want to wait, you know what I mean? Um, to, to, to do cool stuff. So I had a bunch of ideas and I grabbed some friends and we started a company called special sauce company. And because we had no money, no resources and just a fledgling network, we decided that our mission was was going to center around like free site specific work. And it's interesting because that, that company only lasted about a year and a half, but in my head, it was like a five year venture because we did, we did like a number of projects and we worked with a bunch of playwrights that are now like super well regarded. But at that time we just, we just found them like, you know, friends of friends and stuff like that. Um, but we did, all kinds of stuff, fundraising stuff, you know, um, you know, we, we, we take over like, not take over, but we go to Greenpoint and kind of work with a bar. We'd get a little permit so we could be in the park. We'd do something on the street and we had this thing where we'd make people kind of like walk to all these locations in a group and see these little 10 minute plays that we had commissioned. And, um, and I think that just was like, well, if I could do that, then I, I don't know what I can't do. And I, and I never like, I never stopped, you know, whenever there was an idea, I just kind of, got some friends and put it together. And, um, you know, honestly, most of it was way easier than you would expect. You know, I think people kind of are waiting for an opportunity to Mm -hmm. collaborate and make something. And that's been my experience. Yeah. Do you enjoy the producing side of it now or? Yeah. um, It sounds like you've kind of got your fingers in all sides of it. Now you've been like writing and directing and mm -hmm. doing filmmaking and everything. Is there one, one part of it that you're most jazzed about these days or is it always about the specific project? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question too. I've never thought about it. I think it's probably project specific, just feeling like I'll do what needs to be done. You know, and if I had to, if that meant, that means, you know, running the box office or like, I, I just always feel like, you know, we get a, get a group of people together and you do what you need to do. I, I think that I've enjoyed certain things more than others, but, um, you know, I, I think the way I work is general, generally kind of non-hierarchical and uh, collaborative in that way. So I don't see myself strictly as any of these one things. I think that I wish I was a better writer. You know, I wish I was a more productive writer. Um, certainly, I don't even know about better. I just wish I could write more consistently because I think that would actually take care of getting better. Uh, but I have these ideas, so many ideas that I don't know that anybody <laughs> will ever see just because I, it's really hard for me to sit down in front of a you know, computer. But there's been times when the idea was so, I was so overtaken with it that um, they came out. You know, like my first short film, I wrote it on, I wrote the draft of it on the subway to a commercial audition. And I showed it to my friend, like, I don't know if there's anything good, but uh, here's an idea. And he was like, yo, this is dope. Let's do it. You know? And so we just made a film over the next couple of weeks that um, I remember I sent it to, I tweeted it to Ava DuVernay. This was many years ago. <laughs> and I was like, hey, Ava, I'm a big fan. Like, uh, just can you give me some feedback? She watched it. She was like, I loved it. Keep going. Um, and, you know, that was 
amazing for me to be like, wow, I just wrote this on the subway, you know, not even really, you know, and, and, but I can't repeat that. You know, I just, I have all these ideas and I'm like, I'm thought, oh, so that's, I got, you know, I can just, and it doesn't come out. I just, mm-hmm. I wish I was better at writing, but you know, it's really, I think, yeah, the idea itself. Yeah. Um, I found like when I was starting this podcast and with a couple other things, I found that sometimes that step of like sharing it with a friend really helps me like that one little bit of accountability of knowing that you've told someone else about it, like gets me moving in a certain way where if I was just trying to develop it on my own, I, I probably would just never sit down and do it. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. And I think it makes the work better too. Um, you know, I think ownership is very entangled in a lot of other faulty principles of our culture. And, um, you know, there's all kinds of peoples who have dwelt on this earth that never even came up with the conception that you might own something. And mm-hmm. uh, I think in an art-making world, uh, although there are obviously many, you know, geniuses and visionaries who are very particular about their vision, sure. But for me, I find that I'm not so precious. You know, I, I make things because they have intentions and anything that can help that intention even if it's an outside person or idea is to me a win, not a loss. And yes, and frankly, you know, it helps the accountability process of making sure that it happens, you know? Yeah. Can we talk a little bit more about that idea? Cause I know you've been really delving into, you've got these study group. I I said multiple, I don't know why you have this study group (laughs) um, about anti-capitalism for artists and you obviously just mentioned some ideas about like how that applies to art making itself, like not just, uh, you know, currency. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what got you interested in it and what you're doing with that? Yeah. So <laughs> another, another just spur of the moment idea that uh, I had and presented to some people uh, and, and just, they were like, yeah, sure. And now it's a thing. Um, basically, you know, the start of the pandemic, um, which also coincided with the start of, you know, Black Lives Matter uprisings around the country. Um, at that time, I was, I, so I started the pandemic, I was actually in rehearsal for what would have been my Broadway debut. And oh my gosh. Um, yeah, and um, so I was in New York, even though I'm based in Los Angeles. And, and when I'm in New York, uh, for work or for visiting or whatever, I always stay with my mom, because I'd rather not spend the money on some mm-hmm. sublet when, if I don't have to, right. But as a consequence, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable taking out to the streets, um, you know, standing in solidarity of these of these movements, uh, because I didn't want to bring something back into the house. Uh, she's of a certain age with underlying conditions. So I was really struck with the idea that like now is a really fertile moment for political education, radicalization, et cetera. But, um, you know, how can I participate? So I started doing some kind of campaign work from home, some phone banking, fundraising and stuff like that. And that felt good. But I also felt like there was something a little more unique um, to kind of like what I was talking about earlier, like what can I do now? And and I was, frankly, way, I think oddly more, I think I'm less uh, depressed than I, uh, now than I was then, if you can believe, like in the heart of the pandemic, um, uh, because I hadn't really addressed this question of what can I do specifically. So I... You know, I realized that my, my demographics, my, 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 my peers uh, in, in, you know, the theater, TV, film worlds seem to be, you know, pretty fairly centrist, you know, maybe slightly left skewing. And I'm just, you know, 
not ashamed of this, I'm, I'm a leftist. Like that's just what I, I think that the problems that we face politically uh, can't be solved by modest reforms, but that they, there actually needs to be substantial systemic changes. And actually what I realized is, well, actually, thanks to the work of activists and artists over the past few years, that actually my peers are already talking about what we call systemic change, but mostly through the lens of identity, right? Race mm-hmm. and gender, sexuality, uh, accessibility, ability, right? And 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 I felt, and I, as I still feel, that actually you can't get at systemic change without incorporating a class politic. And in fact, the word that we all often know these days as intersectionality was coined by people who, you know, yes, it was a black feminist word that has lineages before the term was coined in black feminist movements and thinkers, you know, way back in time. So yes, it, it's about gender. Yes, it's about uh, race. But all of these thinkers, uh, whether it be the Kambahi River Collective, the black fe- uh, feminist lesbians of the 70s, who who were the first people to, to use the term identity politics, or it's Kimberly Crenshaw who coined the term intersectionality. They all, part of that intersectionality was class. And I just kind of had this eureka moment where I'm like, okay, we're talking about these things as systemic, we're using the word intersectionality, but we're forgetting this one component. And so I'd like, I'm gonna make an offering if anybody would like to learn how to like enhance their efforts in all these other areas and talk about class politics. Um, here's what I'm doing. It's a study group called Anti-Capitalism for Artists. We'll meet once a week for eight weeks. I'll give you all the material. You won't have to buy anything. It'll be completely free. Just if you can donate, great. If you can't, I will never you know, shame you for that. Um, and let's hang out for eight weeks. And I just kind of put it on my social media and a few people maybe shared. And it was mostly, I think, you know, about 40 people who I knew, um, various degrees of, of, you know, closeness and we did it. And then the second time, or rather, and then it was, I was like, well, that's great. You know, and, um, everybody was really fired up and people want to spread the word. So I was like, okay, I'll do it again. I took a couple of weeks to recalibrate and, um, they the, the, the second round was like if it was maybe a 80 90 percent my personal friends the first time the second time because of word of mouth it was like maybe you know 60 70 percent my friends 30 40 word of mouth and i'm going to be doing it again uh starting sometime very soon in the new year and it's already looking like it's now like almost maybe 40 percent my friends 60 percent word of mouth so you know now it's really just taking on a life of of its own. Um, and I have a really unfussy barrier. It's just like, do you consider yourself an artist? Great. You can come. Like, it's not about how much money you make or how professionalized you are or anything, how good you even are. I don't give, you know, I don't care. Um, so yeah, it's just like, if you want to learn about this stuff and you consider yourself an artist, then I have this space for you. And, um, it's been really fulfilling. Uh, and I'm going to, not only am I going to keep doing it, I'm actually expanding so that it's actually, it will be, uh, these groups because it will be um, multiple different types of, of political education offerings uh, so that folks who don't have eight weeks, maybe there's that two weeks or one week or just a day, will be able to find something on a kind of calendar of, a, of, of offerings that they can just start to penetrate class politics. That's amazing. Did you spend, did you, were you already in a place of um, study on all of that before you started these classes or was the first one kind of a you were learning along with the group so yeah i mean i i mean obviously it's already always a discussion well i mean i do yeah i do learn a lot from from i don't know if they're even my students i i but you know <laughs> i learn from the people who, who take this for sure i think 
well, I don't want to give anybody listening the impression that I'm some type of like high theorist of, of you know, anti-capitalism. I did basically realize, okay, I feel qualified to at least offer this intro level uh, course because I have been studying this stuff for years, you know, um, very much autodidactically. Um, I've never like, I didn't enroll in a program or, or take a formal course or anything like that. But that really since probably around 2015, I had my moment, like much like the moment I'm offering people where I was thinking about race and gender and, you know, because I mean, if I if I can give a short context for even just how I know this stuff, it's yeah. like when Trayvon Martin was murdered, um, you know, while I'd always been somewhat race aware, I did not have a race politics. You know, I didn't have a, I didn't have a critical race theory. And I kind of found myself primarily on Twitter, where I found the smartest people were, were talking very loudly about um, white supremacy. And I, and I noticed very quickly that most of those people were like non-straight black men and black women who were both straight and non-straight. And so just, so my interest was in like understanding white supremacy because I was, I felt pers- I, I felt like I saw myself in Trayvon at that time. Mm-hmm. But because of the people who were talking and what and, and the other things they were talking about, you know, I was learning about feminism. I remember at that time, street harassment was like a really big teachable moment on the internet of just like how men relate to women or straight women, men, I suppose, relate to women in, in, in casual settings. Um, and I had never considered myself a street harasser, but I also had not considered the 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 like depths of what that meant for a feminist politic you know i had i just knew like it's not me and it's probably annoying but you know but really grappling with this and then going to my friends and like seeing the conversation we were having and starting to like speak up in in that space about how we you know when we're at the bars like i don't think you know there's nothing wrong being at the bars like trying to flirt but like how are we doing this and how are Mm -hmm. we thinking of this and like realizing that i'm actually starting to embrace a a black feminist politic and intersectionality then comes along and you're like oh my god there's so many people i'm not considering like i came here because i saw myself in trayvon but there's actually so much more if i really care that i that i have to bring into my consideration and eventually i just kind of realized that most of these folks not all but maybe not even most but but a, a good amount we're also talking about capitalism. And when you talk about capitalism, you generally talk about at least Karl Marx. And when you start talking about Marx, you start, you know, that that path into anti-capitalism and socialism and communism and all the, all the like. So it's around 2015 when I feel like, especially because of Bernie, that um, I was really grappling with class. And that's just been, as time has gone on, it's been more and more and more and more about class uh, for me. Uh, and so that's my background, I guess, in brief, you know. Thank you. Um, yeah. How So I'm curious how the perspective of the arts comes into it, because obviously like these huge topics that you're talking about and how pervasive they all are throughout our society is already enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. So how have you, how do you feel like it's changed your perspective as an artist or what sorts of things are you taking into consideration now mm-hmm. after doing this work That's or as you're question. doing this work? <laughs> That's a huge question. Um, and there's so many, there's so many things I could say. So I'll probably just say a few and, and, you know, um, but I think that, so, you know, when we talk about this in the group, we're all kind of led by certain morality and ethics in our actual lives. And then when we encounter work as artists, 
um, specifically if you're like an actor, you know, a kind of freelance collaborator, essentially, right? Where you're, you're, the story's already written before you ever even are auditioning, you know, it's, it's, the story is set, you know, the biggest choice we have is the power of no, right? And so mm-hmm. even before all this, there was stuff like, you know, most cop stuff I'm not interested in because I'm, I'm generally coming in to play some type of criminal. And even if they try to be clever about it, it just is perpetuating narrative that I don't think, you know, is uh, fruitful. But, you know, I've started to get ones now as I'm getting a little older. It's like, it's about that black cop who like has to make a choice. And it's still, it's just like not the zone in which on a race level, I'm pretty interested in. But, but I think, yeah, this work is also makes, and, and a lot of actors feel like, you know, they're really disoriented after like, not feeling that they don't know what's ethical, like what stories they want to be a part of. And I certainly feel that. But, and and I think, so part of this class is about helping people see, you know, what narratives or, you know, ideologies and hegemonies are the two technical terms that we unpack a lot. What kind of dominating ideologies that ultimately influence how people think are we contributing to? And, 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 while we have to survive, and, and most of us are not in a in too privileged of a position to just say no to everything we might disagree with a little bit, how can we see a little more clearly, um, you know, our own enabling of these narratives? But I'm also more interested in, like, theater specifically prides itself on being a progressive medium, especially here in New York City. Mm-hmm. But, and I, there's a lot of folks I could talk about, but I'm just going to talk about the flea because I didn't start this conversation. It's already happening right now on Twitter. But like, you know, people are rightfully pointing out the finances of a company that has millions of dollars in its bank account, but chooses to employ 70 unpaid artists to ultimately make, make it run. But it gets more interesting when you think about the fact that one of the board members of the flea is like a C, uh, uh, an executive at uh, one of the, the big pharmaceutical company that's like responsible for America's opioid crisis, you know, that, that that guy sits on their board or just all the big Bank of America and how they, you mm. know, uh, bankroll theater seasons. And then they, the theater does a, a play about like the bank, literally a play about like the evils of the banking industry. And like there's nobody bats an eye at the irony. Um, and so I think that I'm also interested in us kind of unfurling ourselves from capitalism as an industry, as institutions. I think of what Columbia University, uh, their great divestment campaign. You know, this is a school that's very left, that's teaching students about prison abolition long before it was in the national discourse. And those students got together and said, you're teaching us this. Um, But you literally, you take our tuition every year and put it in a portfolio that invests in the for-profit prison industry. These things cannot coexist. You know, either you either you divest from that campaign or stop teaching people about prison abolition as you literally perpetuate. So divestment, right, is a strategy. So part of this teaching work is also about getting us aware, like, what are the economics of theater? You know, I saw a post in a stage management group where this guy was like so happy that he pulled off COVID theater, like some drive through theater. And somebody pointed out in the comments, like most people are like, yeah, yeah, you did it. Theater's back. But then somebody was like, hey, um, you're not getting paid a legal wage. And the guy was very defensive. He was like, what do you mean? What do you, of course. And he said, and she said, no, no, no. Here's the legal wage in your state. I looked it up. Here's the hours you said you're doing. By the way, because you're not just a stage manager, but you're a COVID compliance person, da, 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 you basically have three jobs. 
this all works out to less than the legal minimum wage. And so we're so excited, right, to be doing COVID theater, but we don't even understand. I mean, his first reaction was like, what do you mean? No, I'm not, you know, and he was, he was being literally ripped right. off. I mean, it's, it's, it's textbook exploitation. And he was somehow feeling good about it, you know. So I'm really trying to help people see that when we feel all burnt out and, you know, underpaid, that there's actually, there's like, you can, it's not just mean people, but that there's actually real specific structural areas that we can intervene to take theater back. And, and, and that theater's talking about progressive issues doesn't have to be on the backs of like exploitation and just like rife neoliberalism, but that actually we can, we can you know, figure out some new ways. And, and I think actually that, that, just to bring it back to like all the other conversations we're having, I think that will necessarily result in a more diverse landscape, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's, it's so deeply ingrained in us as performers that you should just be grateful to have any job. Yeah. No matter what. And I think everybody hits a wall with that, but partly you kind of like feel in your head that you're, you have to do this deal and, you know, work the industry just to make it work and pay your bills and, you know, give and take. Yeah. But I like, I like what you said about how our most powerful thing we have is the no. It's just well, getting yeah. over that idea that sometimes in your head you're like they don't care if I say no because <laughs> there's someone right. else who'll take the job. Well, but so you'll the, know you did it. Well, the thing about that is, so I, I'm very clear with you know folks that this is a study group. You know, the classic kind of leftist paradigm is that you have theory and praxis. Praxis being a fancy word for doing for action. Mm-hmm. And I'm very clear with people who take the program. This is theory, but at a certain point you're probably going to be fired up and you're going to want to do something. So you're going to have to find and and I and I kind of stress that leftist politics the difference between leftism and liberalism well there's many but the, one of the main <laughs> ones is that liberal liberal-minded people believe because we liberal-minded people t- typically and when i say liberal here i don't mean socially liberal i mean liberal in the sense that um you know classical liberalism is, is the is the ethos of you know everything from freedom of press and freedom of religion but also pretty 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 essentially freedom of market and that actually the Democratic Party and the Republican Party both agree that free markets, capitalism, is absolutely the best way to go. And that the country is kind of like a one, it is a one party political, like political economic system in that way. Social liberalism only comes to the fore in the 30s when, you know, women and then black people and then all kinds of people of color start deciding, hey, how do we have access to the principles of liberalism if we're denied these you know, legal kind of rights? And so that's when social conservatism kind of opposes that. And we're still, you know, today you can't say black people shouldn't vote, but today people say, well, trans people shouldn't be in the bathroom. So we still have this kind of social liberal versus conservatism, but the, but the core, you know, when I say liberal, I just, so for people listening, I'm not insulting people. Or I'm not, hopefully I'm not insulting everybody, but I'm not critiquing people who are socially liberal. I'm critiquing right, right, right. people who are politically and economically liberal in terms of their relationship to capitalism. And I think if you believe in this system, then you kind of believe, well, I show up every four years, maybe two if I'm really on it, and I vote for certain people and they keep the ship running in a way that I feel like is good, right? But if you're a leftist, you understand that if the system isn't really helping us, then we take this knowledge, this theory, and you have to be organized, not mobilized. Not something happens, I come out and take to the streets, I go home. But I'm actually tapped into organizations that are sustained and sustainable, right? Beyond just if some black person was shot in the streets or some Republican politician did something, these organizations are persistent. They're in persistent formation to fight for all of us because it's only through collective action that any of these things can happen. Indeed, you feel like somebody else is going to take it and it's true, they will. But if we get in collective, I mean, this is for instance, what a strike or a boycott is about, right? 
any one person boycotts, I'm not going to shop at Amazon. Amazon doesn't care. If 10,000, 100,000, a million people decided not to shop at Amazon, then something would change. So we have to move from the knowledge, which I'm very happy being a kind of fertile ground for, for artists to obtain. But I'm also, part of my work right now is about connecting my kind of program to um, organizations that are either looking for artists to be organized. I mean, there's a group in New York called the Workers Artists Project, which is literally organizing artists um, to be like, hey, they're waiting for you. Now that you understand that things need to change, they're waiting for you. And they can organize around issues like pay. Like, I mean, look, we're one of the few unions that are still working a six-day you know, work week. Most unions figured out about 100 years ago that you, know, you need two days off. Yeah. So it's like we need to organize around these issues. You know, stuff like wage increases may not be anywhere near on the other side of this pandemic, but this is a great time to talk about some of like work quality of work and like all the all the things that that um, that are about you know how run down and exploited and competitive this right. this industry can be for no good reason. That's my hope. Is like this since this is an actual stop to our industry, at least on the theater side. My hope is that yeah, it's an opportunity. For some kind of big change mm-hmm. because we've actually stopped the machine from running yeah. or COVID has, um, you know, and the fear is that it'll just continue on exactly the same because everyone will be so strapped for cash and fearful. But Even worse, I, think, I do I, think it is an opportunity. Yeah. I think it's a huge opportunity, but it depends on us. You know, like nobody's coming to save us. And I, and I, and I, and I tell this again to people a lot, like Nancy Pelosi was like, you know, if, if they try to put in, Amy Coney Barrett, like we're going to use every arrow in our quiver to stop them. And like, I'm not here to to trash on anybody, but like we see what that looks like, right? She's still in there. And I think what I'm really trying to to key people into is that like, perhaps nobody's coming to save us. Like perhaps things are pretty rotten. And although that's really sad, there's a whole parallel history out there of working class people working from primarily the, the, the politic of labor and class that have done enormous things. I mean, most of the good things we have in in our work lives come from the labor movement. And as a short kind of history aside, it's because of Ronald Reagan and the agenda of neoliberalism that comes to fore in the 70s and hits hard in the 80s, that, that labor organizing takes a huge, massive hit, right? And so up for especially people our age, it's like before, if you were before the 70s, like you probably had a some type of uh, relationship to a labor-oriented or class-oriented project or organization, you know, because right. people just knew that you needed that. And then it's and been we haven't grown up with that in quite the same way. We've been we've been grown up. We've we've grown up with the wasteland. You know, we've we've grown up with the scorched earth of that. You know, even I'm reading a book on like the AFL CIO, and it's just the story of them becoming like less kind of militant and more bureaucratic and just concessional. And just basically throwing up their hands and being like, you know, yeah, maybe we're the, the largest like labor federation in America, but you know, let's just work with them instead of fight fight against them. And, you know, that that's um, that's something that we need to change. Mm-hmm. Um, if we can switch gears, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, tell me about your decision to move to LA. Yeah, well, as someone who was that. born and raised <laughs> in New York. Yeah, it was and continues to be an interesting decision. Um, you know, I, yeah, I so I grew up in New York. 
I went to high school across the street from Juilliard. <laughs> I stuck around. Uh, and, and, you know, my high school and Juilliard are 30 blocks uh, uptown or, or downtown from, from school. So all on the Upper West Side, even though Lincoln Center is not really the Upper West Side, in my opinion. But, um, yeah, it was a very small bubble. Obviously, one of the kind of better bubbles probably, you know, in the country. But um, a really small bubble that I, I had never really left. And um, I had visited, obviously, you know, we do our showcase at the end of the fourth year. We go out to L.A. And I, I was not impressed. And uh, I visited some friends a few years later. And I was like, okay, great, great place to visit. I'm happy to be here for a couple of weeks. But wasn't impressed as a living situation. But when right before I moved, I was having a really hard time. And um, I'd always addressed that not through the notion of travel. I mean, I'm still kind of travel averse, to be honest. Um, but I thought maybe uprooting myself um, would be good. I started to entertain the idea. And then I just happened to get a job oddly doing like Shakespeare in Los Angeles, which is not the type <laughs> of job that people associate with Los Angeles, but good for me because I love Shakespeare and it's probably one of the things my agents, you know, kind of are always looking out for me, you know, uh, to do. So it, I came out and then, yeah, that I was like, actually, maybe I can do this. Not to like be a Shakespeare actor in LA, but I, you know, just, just, I had new eyes on it. And frankly, also I, I met somebody, um, when I was out here working and, um, it became quite serious and we were happy to do lost long distance, but, um, I basically was like, okay, on a personal level, on a professional level, um, you know, and like when I say person, I mean, there's like the person like changing my life for personal reasons. And then also personal in the sense of like for love, um, maybe yeah, I can give it a shot. And so I've been here and it's, it's been weird, but I, <laughs> I'm here. And when, how, when was that? How far before the pandemic was that, that you moved out there? Um... Well, I think it was about two years ago. I think I moved a little before Thanksgiving or maybe after. So I think it's actually about two years from now. Yeah. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And how has your process of building yourself a community out there? been going yeah well it's been challenged because i don't have a car uh i actually ah. <laughs> yeah i actually didn't learn to drive i didn't have my put it this way i didn't have my driver's license until i think two weeks before i moved um oh i just kind of crash course learned and took the test um in the in like the couple of months before I had a move date set and just hope that you know I'd pass and it all work out so at least I have the license but mm -hmm. I also didn't have a car I mean thankfully where I live is close to the uh, metro system uh I have a bicycle and I you know well before the pandemic was using like Lyft a lot um which is a lot cheaper here than in New York um so you know I make I make it work but it's been hard because Part of the way I made community in New York was often around making stuff, like weird stuff, like DIY stuff. 
Whereas I feel like, although people are doing that in Los Angeles, it's a little more geared toward like industry, you know, like kind of creating like showcase opportunities for themselves or like, you know, like this, this type of thing. And is that because of TV and film industry? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole city is kind of literally like you, you kind of go, I mean, again, not so much maybe in pandemic, but in normal times you see, you know, people like just driving down the street, you see like people filming TikToks, you know, just kind of like, it's like, it's, (laughs) there's a lot of that, like, you know, that kind of energy of like people trying to make it big um, in, in the formal industry. And that I'm not knocking it. It's just never been my interest. And it's never been like all the ideas we're saying that I have, like they're very, they're very much not geared for that. Um, So that's been hard because I feel like I probably would have a a way, way wider network if I thought that way. Um, But at the same time, you know, I think you can recognize when people, it's a lot easier to see when somebody's like on your wavelength out here um, just because the contrast is so clear. It's like, like I've had people who I've <laughs> this guy I did a meeting with, and I went to high school with him. I hadn't seen him in a long time. He like really like strictly like set an alarm for our talk. Like I don't know if that's a thing, but I just felt like wow, like we have twenty five <laughs> minutes, and like twenty five minutes the alarm went off, and he was like, "Well, thanks for the time. I got to run." And it was just like wow, like this is feels very. This was like, in person or on Zoom? Yeah, this was this was in person. This is pre pandemic. <laughs> this was like you just like. You know, and it, even the conversation was very structured. It was like transactional feeling like, hey, let's like be friends because I can do this for you and you can do this for me. Right. And I appreciated the transparency of everything. It's like, but that's what I'm saying that when I say the contrast is very apparent, it's like you really know like what if people are that type of person or somebody else. And so that's, you know, been interesting to navigate. <laughs> um, do you have any mentors when it comes to your creative life that have been helpful to you over the years Mm. uh i do i i have um the the guy actually who i mentioned alfred pricer who who ran the uh, harlem school for the arts and and classical theater of harlem for a long time um yeah we we talk uh you know just sometimes just about politics or you know about art and he's always encouraging me to to do things that you know, like he really wants me to start a theater company, for instance. And I keep telling him, I don't, I just don't want to, you know, <laughs> but, but I respect that he, that he wants me to. And it's, it's really through him that um, he's helped me facilitate some of my other projects. Like, um, you know, this thing, I did this thing with some friends. Uh, we co-produced Interfest, um, which is a festival at the time around the principles of emergent strategy by Agent Marie Brown and kind of built for the, built for mutual liberation um, through arts and ideas. And so we had all these different events over the course of a weekend. And that was him asking me to do, well, he actually asked me to put on a play reading series. And I said, I'm, I would not like to do that. I'd like to do something else. And I dreamed of this crazy three-day festival. And he was like, wow, that's 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 not what I had in mind, but sure. you know." And, and just facilitating that. And I got to bring in uh, Kristen Adel Calhoun and uh, Zakia Monique and Stephanie Rowland. And I split, you know, he was like, I can't give you any more money. So I was like, fine. I took my little fee and we split it four ways. And and uh, we just built something with the money that they gave us and stuff like that. So, yeah, he's been very, very useful. Um, is there a lesson that you've learned in the last couple of years that you're really proud of that you wouldn't mind sharing? It could be something small or big. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's just because of where I am right now, you know, but I think... 
I think that people generally are a lot more resilient than they know. They're a lot more compelling than they know. They're a lot more um, capable than they know. And so I feel like now when I'm in like tough spots or whatever, um, the lesson is that like truly like there's something on the other side, you know, um, that, that, that pushing, you know, there's the idea the only way out is through, but that like just going forward a lot of the time, um, is the best way, you know, and that, that actually you're, you're definitely capable of doing that. And that comes to like creative things, but it also comes from, you know, into like personal, ad, 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 uh, I was going to say adversaries, but that's not the word I'm looking for. What am I looking for? Um, Adversity. Yeah, adversity. <laughs> adversity. <thank laughs> Personal adversity. Yeah. So uh, adversary as well. But yeah, I, I think that that's something that I'm always trying to remind myself. Yeah. I like that. Um, well, there's a couple small questions that I usually ask at the end, but is there anything that you were really looking forward to talking about today that I haven't asked you about? Because I don't want to skip over something if you were really looking forward to mentioning it. No, I mean, I was really looking forward. I'm glad we got to talk about kind of the study group stuff. And I guess the only thing I, oh, well, maybe just this, you know, obviously if people are interested in that program, um, you know, they can look it up. Um, but but also I, I share the curriculum for people, like if they don't have time at all to um, oh, great. to be involved and they just want to like learn, it's it's all resources that are freely available online. So, yeah. Um, where is the best place to find that or find you online? Yeah, so uh, I don't know if this will be true when the um, when this is released because I think there's like a rebranding thing going on right now. Um, so probably you know through my personal account would be surefire way to find some information um, on Twitter. Or... Yeah, so Twitter or Instagram is the same at handle, which is my name, Chris Myers, M Y E R S Inc. Like Incorporated, so Chris Myers Inc. Um, and yeah, I'm always kind of talking about it or posting about it. So there'd probably be something there. Yeah. Okay, great. Awesome. That's great that you share those materials. Yeah. Um, so if you do feel like you're in that dark place or um, you're having a hard time, are there any like tangible things that you go back to again and again, like a book that you read or music mm. you listen to or something like that? Oh, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, I mean, I physical activity is super important to me, and I understand that for everybody, that's not going to be... I mean, look, it's not, it's not even easy for me, but for some people, it might be actually impossible due to various conditions. So, you know, I definitely I definitely hear that and, and hold space for that. But for those who can, um, some form of physical activity is always really good. I mean, there's actually research that shows that when you're in that dark place, it really helps. But it can be as simple as a walk. You know, I... I, I am currently too depressed to be like doing furious home workouts. You know, I typically before the pandemic, you know, just a light week for me would be going to the gym three times a week, you know, could be up to five. And when the pandemic started and my, the dark place started arriving, I, you know, I'm like, I don't care. I bought some resistance yeah. bands and freeway. I'm like, I don't care. I don't want to. It's hard know. to make yourself do it in your own house. Yeah. But what I have found is I can take long walks and this also may not be so easy for those of us on the East Coast, especially. But, you know, I started saying, you know, I'm just going to load up a podcast for me. It's a, of 
course, one that deals with anti-capitalism. But uh, <laughs> I look up a podcast and um, I just allow myself two long chunks, one at the start of the day, one at the end of the day. And I try to hit like 8,000 steps. And like that does a lot for me. So I'm being out in the house. I'm breathing fresh air. I'm moving my body. Um, as far as music, jazz really, for some reason, is like just emotive it's like a warm blanket it's like i see you everything's gonna be okay i like going back to like miles davis kind of blue for instance it's a little sad but it's like a comforting sad um uh yeah i think Adrian marie brown's emergent strategy it can also be a really resourceful text um it was recommended to me actually by one of the folks i work with in interfest and she was just like read it i was like what's it about she was just like read it you'll like it. And it was true. So anybody who is remotely interested, interested in making the world a better place, making themselves a better person, I just suggest read it. You'll like it. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I'm lucky enough to have a partner that I can talk to. But for those of us who don't, um, hopefully you have a friend or a family member, somebody that you can trust who um, can just listen. And I think that can always be really good, just venting and making sure that you're not alone, stuck in your head. Um, you know, for too long. Um, and then the final question is, is there any piece of art that you've consumed lately that you want to recommend of any art form? Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I was really impressed with um, I May Destroy You um, as, a, as, a, as a show. Um, mm-hmm. I... I mean, obviously the content of the show, the subject matter is absolutely necessary, but I was really impressed by the, you know, storytelling choices, um, the framing, the characters, you know, this kind of thing. Um, I think there's a lot of discussion about how we talk about these moments that don't feel gimmicky or, you know, how do we tell them in complex, nuanced ways? And I think it, it is hard for some of us because it bristles against the kind of neat packaged narratives that we're used to that are quite common these days, especially in TV, you know, in the area of Netflix and, and Amazon, things are th- like literally made by algorithm. And uh, I think it's hard to shoehorn n- nuanced, complex ideas into like fundamentally, you know, profit driven narrative models. But I think that Michaela really figured out how to do that, or at least took a strong pass that we can all learn from. Um, And I just also, yeah, but as far as the subject matter, it goes specifically, I, you know, as somebody, like, as I said, who's who's learned a lot from black women over the years, like I've read about these issues in in the kind of academic, you know, or scholarly context. And the question I am always trying to ask to artists who write about these types of topics is like, well, why put it in the form of uh, a fictional narrative, right? Hmm. Sometimes I see stuff and I'm like, honestly, I wish I just saw the documentary or I wish I just read the, the long form essay or something. And again, I think Michaela figured out like, this is why we tell stories with fictional characters. This is why we act instead of just document, you know? Um, So that for me was really revelatory. On the fact that she was in control of telling the story and playing that main character was so amazing. Like it, it wasn't, you know, some man running the show who, was using her as the main character. Like she was in control of it all, which I just found so inspiring. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, she also, you know, the way she tells that story of resisting certain deals that uh, I think for, for Netflix, mm-hmm. he wanted, you know, to basically own the work. That's something that I thought about saying earlier, but I think there's really some, like, just, I think we all can, can trust our own stubbornness a lot more. You know, I think we can really um, know that if we're on to something, we're on to something. And if people want to help you facilitate your vision, then that's where collaboration starts. When people are there to help you, but also take from you, I think it's better to just keep on going. I think Michaela is a great example of that, right? Like she's not strapped for ideas. She just needs resources. And some people want to say, okay, yeah. I'll give you resources if you give me everything. And she was like, no. And that, and that creative control, um, it shows. It shows in the work and it shows with certainly whatever comes next for her. You know, it's going to be that much more confident. Chris, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks for talking. Thank you for listening to the Compass Podcast. If you find these conversations valuable to your life as an artist and would like to support the ongoing production of The Compass, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thecompasspodcast. Pledges start at as little as $1 a month. Anything you can give would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you have a moment, please rate or review in iTunes. Every little bit helps other listeners to find the podcast. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brandon Spieth, audio assistance from Nick Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.